Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy City Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy, offering simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Check out their mobile app and interviews of Miles and Brian in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Windy City Historians podcast, episode 25, A Book and a Beer. George Aid and the Old Time Saloon. Chris, 25, we've made it that far. I know, it's hard to believe, Patrick, and we did it basically without a break, except, as you know, we took the summer off because we had been going fast for two years almost. Yeah, I'd probably use a beer after that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Well, I could use a beer after the story I'm about to tell you. I was driving down I-65. Mm-hmm. As we're cruising along, we were a little north of Rensselaer, you know, the, where the windmills are. So right before the windmills, the road just stops. It went from 70 to zero. Oh, man. So we were forced off the road. So now you had thousands of cars and trucks on these little country roads trying to go south. Okay, so but you got to go east to go south. Mm-hmm. So I'm cruising along these country roads through the cornfields. It was nice weather, rolled down the windows heard the birds chirping and then I heard water gurgling nearby and I looked over and I saw the Iroquois River mm-hmm. and then my senses started to tingle my spidey sense kicked uh, I was in. gonna say your spidey senses my spidey sense kicked in because then I knew I was in George aid country aid country okay yeah I thought I was in George aid country and then when I saw the George aid Memorial Health Care Center I definitely knew I was there. And then when I looked at the map and saw that we were next to the town of Aid, I really knew we were in George Aid country. Had no idea. 1906, the town of Aid, Indiana, with its own post office, was founded in honor of George Aid. Wow. The person we're going to talk about today. Yeah. So at one time, Aid was the toast of not only Indiana, but Chicago. He liked to write about drinking. He enjoyed saloon culture. And he wrote this book called The Old Time Saloon. And we talked to Bill Savage, a professor from Northwestern who has written this wonderful book, an annotated book of the Old Time Saloon. Now, what's interesting about this book is Aid wrote this during Prohibition. So he's looking back with nostalgia to the era of drinking, basically. Mm. And perhaps to him and others, maybe he thought this would never end, this Prohibition. And for many during Prohibition, it never did. (laughs) (laughs) that's true (laughs) hence the speakeasy and and bootlegging and all of that so aid's writing about a kind of a vanished chicago saloon culture the one he knew as a young man in 1893 as a young journalist in chicago and then of course in the 19 teens and the aughts and whatnot so bill savage was our guide through not only george aid's world but chicago at this time and Bill Savage is the perfect guide. So I was delighted that Bill spoke with us and we had a wonderful conversation, Patrick. I learned so much because this is something I did not know really anything about and I had never heard the name of George Aid. 
nor had I. As we introduced this podcast, I knew none of the history. Fantastic. In this interview, you're going to hear Patrick and I go, mm-hmm, yes, uh-huh, because <laughs> we're just listening because we don't really know much about George Aid, and it's fascinating. And Bill is such a good speaker on this topic. It's really a fun interview, so we hope you enjoy it. And at the beginning of the interview with Bill Savage, we started the conversation by him telling us the unique reason why Chicago was such a magnet for great writers. So let's go to the interview. One reason Chicago is a great writer city is it has a tremendous expression that I call a literary or an aesthetic infrastructure. That is a series of, or a complex array of institutions that enable the creative energy of writers to get to readers. This would also be paralleled with visual arts, with anything else you want. Chicago is, is not unique, despite Chicagoans' general desire to call it that, or a city full of boosters. But because of Chicago's size and because of institutions that grew up here, we are a great writer's city, starting, I would argue, in the 1880s to 90s and then ever since. And what this infrastructure consists of is things like newspapers. Newspapers both provide writers with training. Think about how many great Chicago writers worked as newspapermen aid, hacked, the list goes on and on. Newspapers also tell the stories of the city that writers then adapt in creative ways. So like the murder in Native Son is right out of the newspapers, hot off the presses. But you need more than that. You need libraries, both the public library system and private libraries like the Newberry. You need booksellers. Chicago had a huge infrastructure of bookstores and still has a really vibrant independent bookselling scene. You need publishers. Not to mention presses and book binders too, right? Yeah, the printing industry was centered here with Donnelly. But to use today as an example, the sort of array of different publishers from the university presses like Chicago and Northwestern, where I worked on books there. It's like launching a space shuttle. Right? <laughs> yeah. And then you've got, you know, Haymarket Press that can turn a book around in six weeks and everything in between. We've got an array of publishers. We have the universities where writers can work as faculty members, where the literature of the city itself is taught. We've got like a critical mass of all this energy happening in the city, and maybe most importantly, an audience for this literary output that is characterized by a certain kind of generosity. And here it overlaps in a big way with the theater scene in Chicago history, which is, you know, you go to New York or LA and you screw up and you're done. In Chicago, you screw up and they're like, give it another shot. What's up next? Richard Christensen's great book on Chicago theater history really lays out that kind of attitude that Chicago audiences tend to have. And they have it for literary production as well. You know, you write a bad book in this town and no one's going to like pat you on the back for it, but no one's going to you on the forever to be on red list either. So George Aid and the sort of newspaper culture he came out of, he proved his chops by writing really interesting stuff about things that a million other people are writing about, about the World's Fair, about, about big time boxing. And then his editors, because the newspapers were so competitive with each other and the newspaper culture was so vibrant, basically just said, go do whatever you want. And so fables and slang and tales of the city and the town. He just gets to walk around the city and, and see what's going on and write whatever he likes. And that was the big break for him as a writer. He was an early example of national syndication. The works were really, really popular. He got really, really rich. He could retire from newspapering after less than 20 years because he was making so much money on book sales and then drama on Broadway and film. The guy was an American success story. And his insights into saloon culture, I think, are really vital too. They're our primary source as historians for the positive side of saloon culture. The vast majority of stuff that people wrote and read and still read is from the dry side, from the Anti-Saloon League and the WCTU. So, you know, aid is just this invaluable source. There's some really complicated stuff about his personal life as well. George Aid comes out of a world where the city had a dozen newspapers in English, dozens more in the language of different immigrant groups. Nowadays, we doom scroll through Twitter or Facebook 
people would get a morning paper, an afternoon paper, another late edition of the morning paper with the final score of the ball game in it. Information was always pulsing through this infrastructure, which again, I consider cities have to have streets and roads and railroads and sewers and water pipes and electrical and all those things that energy flows through and creative energy works in the same way. So aid comes out of that world with Peter Dunn, with Sherwood Anderson, with Dreiser and Sandberg and all these other guys. He's a little ahead of the curve as is Dunn. The big blow up is really in the teens and 20s. And they do their best work in the 1890s and first decade of the 20th century. But they help lay the groundwork. And both Aid and Dunn produced masterpieces in vernacular American English. Dunn's in Irish American vernacular English. In the tradition of Twain and leading on to people like Anderson and Hemingway and so on. Writing literature in the language people actually speak versus trying to sound proper in English. Well, I was just kind of getting ready for this. And I wanted to take a look at what was the population in Chicago in 1880, 1890, at that turn, and where Chicago really became an urban center. And to give some context, in 1880, there was a half a million people in Chicago. By 1890, there's over a million. Suburbs, suburbs like Lakeview and Hyde Park and Jefferson Park, so on. You're right. There was a million people here before there was a million people in Chicago. The way I describe it is Chicago is an unprecedented place. In 1833, when the village is founded, and of course, in 1837 is the city, but 1833 rhymes with 1893, there was about 300 people here at Wolf Point because there were still wolves and Potawatomi hanging around. We became a village. 60 years later, we're a city of a million people. No city had ever grown that fast in the history of the world. Wow. We became the fourth largest city in the world in a human lifetime. The geography of the city enabled a new kind of industry to grow up. You had the room to build things like the Union Stockyards or all the steel mill complexes. And the immigrant populations provided the workers, as well as immigrants like aid from the countryside. You forget about the fact that like Chicago factories produced reapers that changed the nature of agricultural work, which sent farm boys who otherwise could have hung out and had seasonal work all their lives into the city looking for work because the reaper meant one farmer could do the work of 10 men. So there's this weird, not just immigrants from abroad, but, but immigrants from the American heartland. And then that's why we invented skyscrapers, because we're like, shit, we got a room to grow. We'll grow up instead of out. <laughs> but then like our social arrangements were something that writers couldn't really get their head around. Here I'm working off Carl Smith's great book, Chicago and the American Literary Imagination. But basically, Chicago was seen as inherently unliterary. We did not have like the social elites that Henry James would write about in Philadelphia and Boston and New York and London. Our elites were guys who showed up with nothing and became millionaires as hotel keepers and butchers and beer brewers. Or they got kicked out of New York or from the East Coast that couldn't make it there, and so they came here, right? They went on the run a little bit. So there was these social relationships that were not the stuff of fiction. Like, if Henry James came to Chicago, he would not be able to write about Chicago. And Theodore Dreiser says, I'll just write about what it's really like, which is, you know, young girls from the city come here, get seduced, but don't, like, jump in the river or get hit by a streetcar because bad girls got to suffer a bad fate. Sometimes good things happen to bad people, bad things happen to good people. That's just life. And then Chicago was seen as inherently unpoetic because it was filthy. This is something that we have a real trouble getting our heads around today. The city of Chicago with a million people in it, everyone cooking and heating their homes with coal or kerosene or wood. And that's why we talk about urban literature is gritty. All that smoke is actually particles that land on you. And that's why everything in the city is gritty, the nitty gritty. Not to mention the mud and the dirt and the swampy areas. Everything. Um, not to mention the, the horse shit. Yeah. Everything, picture everything that's done now by cars being done by horses. Yeah. And yeah. not horses like they had at the water tower with big diapers, <laughs> right? I mean, automobiles were, were an anti-pollution innovation. 
Rudyard Kipling came here. He hated it. Yep. Hated every second he was in the city. Thought it was a dump. And this is a guy coming from India. Yeah, instead it was inhabited by savages, to which I can only say yes. <laughs> What's poetry about? True love and flowers and nature in the countryside and true love and knights in shining armor and blah, blah, blah. And Carl Sandburg was like, no, dude, uh, actually, hog butcher for the world, toolmaker, stacker of wheat, right? And people canceled their subscription to Poetry Magazine because of that poem. Mm. Wow. Right? I mean, it was so, it was, this isn't poetry. It was offensive. It was offensive. Yeah, you don't talk, that's not what, poetry's not about blood and guts. Those two innovations, and again, a lot of this is my characterization from teaching this stuff. It's based on the scholarship of others. I don't want to claim any of this is like original to me. But, you know, realism without moralism is what Dreiser gives American literature. And plain language poetry accessible to everybody is what Sandberg gives American literature. Now, within 25, 30 years, modernism takes over and derails all that. And the Fockers and Hemingways and Joyce's and Wolf's of the world become the literary model. And realism and plain language poetry kind of fall by the wayside. But they never go away. Right, the canon might turn toward modernism, but most novels written today are basically Jane Austen knockoffs. The biggest genre of fiction published in the world is romance, and it's just Pride and Prejudice, over and over and over again. George Ade, by writing these newspaper columns, he was out there just sort of taking notes and writing down what people actually said and did. And even though I think he's more sort of distant from where we are now than Sherwood Anderson, who comes along just ten years later, really, he opens that door. And people are like, wow, I can write stuff about the barkeep on the corner rather than <laughs> Knights in Shining Armor. By the way, AIDS newspapers columns go on forever. <laughs> I mean, these things are huge. They, they just, because they had all these pages to fill up. Sure. Same thing with Hecht in Thousand One Afternoons in Chicago. You had to fill that newspaper really one and a half to two times a day, given the different editions. And both Dunn and Aid kind of had burnout when it came to looking for ideas, right? Because they're, they're creating so much copy constantly right but that that recurring character idea is something that aid does in his columns as well and frankly so much of it is about social arrangements that are generations gone now i think it's really hard for contemporary readers to connect like in a hundred years people are going to look back at american sitcoms now and they're going to be like why is the husband always kind of a big dude who watches tv and drinks beer all the time and the wife is always smart and better looking than him and the, there's three <laughs> kids and one is the good kid and one is the bad kid and one is the what am I doing here, kid? These literary conventions, even for television shows, that AIDS working with. Archetypes. And my favorite like, example of like an AIDS story, and I'm not going to remember the title, but that illustrates this, I think. It's in one of the fables in slang. And it's about a businessman who's, you know, done well enough. He's like a middle manager now. And he's at his club having lunch and talking to his friends about there's a little bit of a crisis at home. You know, their, their servant girl quit and they have to hire a new one. Middle class people had live-in servants because labor was cheap. So if you were a middle manager someplace, you would have someone who lived in your home who cooked and cleaned for you and assisted your wife and things. And frankly, if she was a young girl and you had a teenage son, she'd have to watch herself. All sorts of social exploitation and stuff that we don't think about anymore. Well, because you didn't have washing machines or dishwashers or so to have the white shirts to go to work. Right. Ironing. Yeah. The technology. Yeah. We turn on the stove. They got to get the coal, light the fire, manage the fire, time it so you put the food on and the fire hasn't gone out yet. Right. But the big denouement of the story is he gets home for dinner and his wife has hired a woman who he went to grade school with in Indiana. And this is like, what do we do? How do we deal with this? And it's like, thing right <laughs> over our heads. The aid writing that really stands up is his nonfiction. After he retired from newspaper, he did a lot of essays for magazines like Cosmopolitan, which used to be more like a New Yorker. You know, he wrote a great column about his being a bachelor. 
we got some proof that he was gay. Mm. But he writes this long essay about there are men who just don't want to live in someone else's home. You get a room in a boarding house. That's the only thing, boarding houses. Like you got married, then you and your wife would set up housekeeping. Otherwise, mm. you're living in a boarding house or someone else's home. But if you had enough money, you could have your own place and have someone come in to cook and clean for you and so on. And he plays the, oh, my sweetheart married another man in college uh, that, you know, my heart was broken forever and that's it. But he gets into this lengthy thing about population. It was considered patriotic for American men to get married to American women and make babies because we'd just cut off immigration. Oh, right. The 1920s. We were going to have a population decline and the economy was going to crash because who was going to work in the, the factories and the offices if we don't have the flood of immigrants coming from abroad? And this is a really interesting essay about that part of American history that's forgotten because he's writing nonfiction, taking these characters in these social situations that are take so much work for us to get our head around. That's the stuff I think endures. AIDS popularity went on for ages. You cannot go into a used bookstore in Chicago and not find editions of George A. And Pink Marsh. And then there's just collections that are just Chicago stories or fables in slang. And they're everywhere because people kept reissuing them because he was so popular up until about the 50s. Then it starts to decline a little bit and you get a few editions in the 60s and 70s. And then pretty much everything's out of print. Did anyone ever try a crack at the movies with his stuff or television? The movies he worked on are in that world of one real stuff done in Chicago that they don't even oh. have copies of anymore. His plays, which are all kind of Gilbert and Sullivan knockoffs in some ways, minus the music. I don't know that I don't recall ever seeing one ever being produced. Contemporary of AIDS was like Booth Tarkington, who, of course, Orson Welles took a crack at the Magnificent Ambersons. Right. To everyone's dismay, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because Finley, Peter Dunn, and George Aid, they started a, their columns, I think it was the same year, 1893. Yeah, they were friends. Did they ever sit yeah. down in a saloon and talk about their writing? He directly mentions Dunn in the Old Time Saloon. He talks about a couple of specific actual Chicago saloons, and he does mention Dunn in particular. He calls him Pete. So people who knew him called him Peter and people who just read him called him Finley Peter Dunn. Finley was his mother's maiden name. For Dunn, I think Mr. Dooley is a, a fully realized sort of literary world. Frankly, my students can't read it. They don't, they just can't get through it. I've pulled yeah. back from teaching the entire book of Mr. Dooley and Peace and War to just one column. I was going to ask you that because I find it very dense myself. You got to read it aloud and you got to have an ear for it. Okay. But the, the column on reform candidates I can take and just like punch three things in and they get it. You got me thinking here, Mr. Julie would be a good audiobook read by like an Irish actor. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be better as an audiobook. And I think it'd be a good play. Now we must put our backs against the door to keep out the savage hordes. My friend Shaughnessy says so, says he... It's time we done something to make the immigration laws stronger. <laughs> True for you, Miles Standish, I says to him. <laughs> but what would you do? Keep out the off-scourings of the world, he says. And so you might, I says to him. And would you go back? <laughs> now, he says, it was not so big a problem before I come. <laughs> but they're the scum of the earth, just honestly. I says I, they may be that. And here I used to think, twas the best men of the world that come here. The cream of civilization. The lads that was too strong and independent to be kicked around at home. The lads who wanted a chance at the money, to live where every man is the equal of every other man before the law, if he ain't careful. <laughs> but I see I was wrong. Them lads out there dragging their feet to the rolling mills is all arnicists. 
There's warrants out for all of them. And I think I'll board up me windows, says I, for if immigrants are as dangerous to this country as you says they are, why, there's enough of them sneaked in already to make us aborigines about as influential as the prohibition vote in the 29th Ward. But you know, I ain't as afraid of immigrants as you are, I says to him. I ain't afraid of me father, and I ain't afraid of myself. And if you and Schwarzmeister and Malkowski and the rest of the Plymouth Rock Association <laughs> would like to discuss the matter further, we'll meet here at 10. And all the Pilgrim Fathers is requested to bring interpreters. <laughs> sure, maybe you was here first and you have a right to keep the bus from being overcrowded. But I know only one sure way to keep the immigrants at home. Teach them about our institutions before they come. What makes Dunn a genius in my mind, besides the vivid language, is how often his main character loses. Mr. Dooley is wrong a lot, but he's wrong in interesting and funny ways. My favorite one is uh, on a quarrel between England and Germany, where he makes friends with Schwarzmeister, the German saloon keeper from down the street, because there's talk of war between Great Britain and Germany, when then Germany would, of course, free Ireland and it'd all be great. Him and Schwarzmeister forming a new political party. It ends with, I taught him the Irish national anthem. We rolled dice to see whose name would go first. I won, they were my dice. <laughs> Schwarzmeister teaches him the German national anthem and he rattles off a line in German which I just had no idea what it was for many years. And then one of my students was like, uh, I speak German. You know what that says? I'm like, no. He says, he's singing, I don't know what I am saying. <laughs> <laughs> for Don's audience in, in the 1890s, there would have been a huge German-speaking population. So they'd see the German getting the best of the Irishman, even though the Irish guy is the one writing it. And there's the bit on the Indian Wars where he talks about the Indians like they were himself. I'm just like, the, until the Swedes put in a better free lunch and drive me the other side of the tracks. That's very relevant, I think, to a lot of contemporary issues. Absolutely. But remember, one of the things that led to prohibition seeming like a reasonable idea was the vast oversupply. The city's primary source of income was saloon licenses. They didn't have property taxes yet. So they handed out saloon licenses like nobody's business, which led to competition, which led to vice and crime flourishing in the saloons. But Dunn and Dooley and his gang would have hung out in any number of different places most of them downtown. You'd go out in the neighborhood to research your story and then you'd go downtown to file it and you'd go to the saloon near the newspaper or near the train station or whatever. And one blind spot in the old time saloon, aid doesn't seem to really grasp the ethnic saloon concept. Mm -hmm. Like the saloons in neighborhoods where it was a Polish neighborhood, the saloon keeper was Polish, everyone spoke Polish at the bar and he was downtown in what were called American bars. And this is Perry Dewis's research. But the way I characterize it, I think might be useful for the way you guys are thinking about this history stuff. So Chicago was an immigrant city, like 80 plus percent immigrants in 1900, immigrants are the children of immigrants. Between like the 1880s and the 1920s, this was a city like we think of LA now. No one's born there, you just go there. Right. All immigrants have to manage something I call negotiating the hyphen. You're Irish hyphen American, you're German hyphen American. And you bring your culture from your old country, your religion, your food ways, your drinking ways, your attitudes about certain parts of life. And you want to keep that because there's always this nostalgia for the old country. But you also got the fuck out of there because it was the famine or it was war or it was economic privation. And you wanted to be an American. Probably not be to your kids or grandkids that that was accomplished. In the meantime, you're negotiating these two identities. And yeah. saloons were one of the key places that happened. When you got a job in a factory or downtown, you would probably have your lunch or your drink after work at what were called American saloons. These were run by German and Irish immigrants, very few what they then called Native Americans, meaning wasp, Mayflower types. 
Very few of those people were in the bar business in Chicago. It was mostly Irish and German. But they were the more assimilated immigrants. They were the immigrants who'd been here the longest. In the case of the vast majority of Irish immigrants came over speaking English. In those bars, you would speak English. That might be where you organize a union. That might be where you get to know the guys from your factory who aren't from the same old country you're from. But then you go back to your neighborhood where it's 80% Polish. And you go to the corner bar there, and everyone speaks Polish. They have the food from the old country, the music from the old country. You're still talking the politics of the old country and the new country. And you maintain that part, that left side of the hyphen. And so saloon culture was one way that this process of Americanization, assimilation, acculturation, and resistance to that was enacted up until prohibition. And aid has the American side of it down hat, but he has a real blind spot for bars where they wouldn't have spoke his language. Oh, right. Not that he didn't know they were there. He went all over the city. He just didn't write about it. Did he know Hinky Dinkenna or Patty Bauer? All those guys are in Old Time Saloon. Yeah, absolutely. He never hung out at the Working Man's Exchange. Kenna's bar on South Clark Street, but he drops that name as like a generic urban bar name. You had the Farmer's Rest was the like the rural one and the Working Man's Exchange was the urban one. He knew the politics backward and forward. The relationship between politicians and the, the press was very different then, much more contentious, with some one exception anyway, than it is now. One of the things that Dunn famously wrote was, I could call an alderman a thief if I had a comic Irishman do it, but if I did it in real life, I'd get slugged. <laughs> right? The alderman's henchmen would show up and beat you up if you said anything, but you can make all the jokes you want if it's coming from the comic Irishman. If you have a brogue, you can get away with it, right? Right. Not a stage Irishman. Paul Green and other scholars have pointed out, Mr. Dooley is not the stage Irishman. Mm -hmm. Right. The priest is not the stereotypical priest of the stage Irish. You know, nobody really gets drunk in any of these stories. There's relatively little violence except for a couple of pieces that are more about like one of my favorites, again, on criminals. How does the one kid in an otherwise good family grow up to be a criminal? And duly attributes it to the city. Like there's something about the air in the big city. So the newspapering world, depending on if you're working for a morning or an afternoon paper, you'd be filing your copy and then go into the bar to gather more material. That would include all the political insider shenanigans that were going on. These guys knew what was what. Newspapermen went out with the cops and investigated the crime so they could beat the other newspapermen with the story. The people like Aid and Dunn and Dreiser and others who came out of that world the raw material of the city gets transformed by journalists into literature. That's why they're still worth reading now, even if it sometimes takes a little work to get your head around the world they're talking about. And that was a world where getting a scoop was really a big deal. This competition with different newspapers, it's something that I remember as a kid, but now has sort of gone away because as the media has become more factionalized and there's many more, the scoop doesn't so much mean anything. Now it's more about where's the original source and was that any good that can mess things up? But that is a, a way of a scoop. The scoop happens not in the print edition, but on Twitter or on Facebook. If you get something an hour ahead of everybody else and you sit on it to double check your facts, they might beat you to it. If you just get it out there, that's one reason why we got so much bullshit going on. No one pays attention to corrections. Before World War II, you had so many papers. And the Encyclopedia Chicago has a great like timeline of all the different newspapers and when they opened and shut down. Were you an inter-ocean reader or a, a Herald American reader or a Tribune reader? Well, the Tribune always seems to be ahead of this one story. I'll get them today. It was almost as fractured as it is now and as unobjective as it is now. I mean, the Tribune did not purport to be objective. They were isolationist, anti-immigrant, Marshall Field starts the Sun-Times to oppose the Tribune in favor of FDR. So Fox News versus MSNBC is actually a return to what once was. Then you had William Randolph Hearst. I think he owned the Chicago American. Yep. 
And of course, he had an agenda. Oh, yes, he did. And he had a lot of money. Amazing how those two things often go together. And then, of course, my favorite was the Chicago Daily News, the afternoon daily. I remember when it shut down. But it had been around for almost 100 years, I think. That was the first progressive paper in town. That was the first pro-labor paper, first pro-immigrant paper. And it's the most literary paper. That's the paper that Hecht and Sandberg and Dreiser worked for. And if you're crossing uh, the Madison Street Bridge, heading towards the Northwestern Station, you're going to pass right by a stone that says Chicago Daily News. That was the Daily News building. Next time you go there, look at the sculptures. There's mm. like the evolution of print. And the north side, they got the linotype man. Oh, cool. Right? And along the, the back end of the plaza across it, there's like abstract art deco things of Medill and Pulitzer and Franklin, like the history of American oh. journalism. And that was oh, the building that they built to sort of flip off the Tribune. <laughs> um, but their original headquarters is on North Racine. I pass by it on my bike in the summertime a lot. You just have created a new tour, Bill, the newspaper <laughs> infrastructure of the city. That's fascinating. So, Patrick, I think perhaps we need to break in here and say that the reasons for the decline of saloon culture, as it was reflected in what was happening in Chicago as far as the working world. Sure. So kind of the shift from the tail end of the manufacturing industrial revolution economy right. into a more service-based economy or information age economy right. that we're in now. Because before you, you had three shifts People yep. rolling out of the factory, they go get a beer. So when that world began to vanish, the saloon culture that supported it began to vanish as well. Yeah. So let's go back to the interview. Part of saloon culture in general, that Aid and Dunn and Algren and, and Broico and other writers who delve into it take for granted and don't fully express, is how much it's connected to the industrial city. The saloon is where you go after work on your way home, whether it's in your neighborhood, far away from where you work, or right at where you get off the job and you go out. As if you were like a shift worker worked in the mills. Right. And when you had three shifts a day going in factories, you had bars that opened at seven in the morning because seven in the morning was five in the afternoon for the guys who worked the third shift. And bars were where you cashed your paycheck because working class people didn't have bank accounts. If you could get a bar graph of the rise and fall of Chicago industry, you would have an exactly parallel rise and fall of the number of saloons in Chicago or taverns. So now we're down to fewer than 800 tavern licenses in the city. And a tavern license means they don't serve food. They just are a bar. There was once 5,000. Wow. Is it that few? As recently as the 1970s. What's changed since the 1970s? Steel mill shut down, stockyard shut down. We are not an industrial city anymore. We're a service city. You no longer have small industrial plants scattered around in neighborhoods. Although Rogers Park is an exception. Right, Chris? We got SNC Electric. Right. On Ridge. Because West Ridge was mostly dry, there's no saloons around it. That's true. <laughs> Let me ask you, we ask everybody this question. If you had a time machine and wanted to go back and check out the saloon culture, first of all, where would you go and what year would you go? Oh, wow. I never thought about that. That's a great question. I think I would arbitrarily pick 1926 as Roaring 20. Well, no, that's Prohibition era, so I'd, there'd be no real saloons. So I guess I'd have to say 1912. So before the war, but well into the 20th century. And where I would go is I would go to the places downtown along Dearborn and along Clark Street in the actual loop. Those would be the sort of respectable saloons. A mile farther south, down around Van Buren or Jag, then you start getting into the vice districts. And frankly, I don't know that I'm interested in actually experiencing Mickey Finn's. The association of saloon culture with vice is real. The whole concept of sex work is complicated and 
even William Stead in his book, If Christ Came to Chicago, acknowledged that women's options were so few that I'm paraphrasing here, but it's pretty close. A woman can make a better living by the discreet sale of her person than she can any other way. But I've no interest in going to the Everlay Club. But I would want to go out southwest on Archer and northwest on Milwaukee to the immigrant neighborhoods and hope that they don't mind if I don't speak Polish or Bohemian. I think most 21st century Chicagoans would be utterly repelled by the physical state of a saloon. Spittoons every two or three bar stools. Air you could probably cut with a saw because everybody would be smoking. The place would be heated with a coal stove in the corner. So the air would be thick. People would be spitting. The bathroom wouldn't have hot running water. People wouldn't be washing their hands. There'd be rags clipped to the bar that you would use to wipe your face after you drank a beer. I mean, yeah, it's appalling. There's a great concept from Douglas Copeland's novel, Generation X, calls it vaccinated time travel. Like everyone wants <laughs> to go back to the past, but not before penicillin, right? Could I bring my hand sanitizer? Yeah, exactly. This is way beyond sitting down at a table and it's sticky. Right. Not to mention the floor that now you kind of freak out. Is this place clean enough? You look at your fork and there's a spot on it. (laughs) Plus, if you're at the bar by the stockyards, how many guys are coming in with blood on their overall? Exactly. And that that whole row, Whiskey Row on South Ashland. Stanley's is still there, although the the matriarch who ran it passed away recently. Yeah, we heard that. Uh, That's very sad. I believe it's still open, but only for lunch and only Monday through Friday, right? Because there's still just enough industrial stuff going on down there. But once upon a time, that was a whole street of saloons. So I'd like to ride the streetcars around town and experience that kind of stuff. So what would you be wearing? If you look at pictures, people didn't like go home and change into leisure clothes. So there's a great line in, in one of the Dooley stories where he talks about a watch wearing out before the suit of clothes you bought it with does. Huh. We forget how materially opulent we are today. People would own a suit of clothes, one pair of long pants, a suit jacket, a vest, maybe three or four shirts. Collars and cuffs would be something you could remove and clean separately. You had your underwear and your socks. And if you were a man, you wore a hat. Yes. If you're a woman, you wore a hat. And so you'd get up in the morning to go to your factory job with a, a hat on, like a worker's cap or a bowler and your suit of clothes. And you would put on overalls if you did bloody work which were like a suit of clothes on top of your suit of clothes that you would leave at work, but good luck keeping it all off you. Look at pictures of neighborhood saloons. People have jackets on, they have ties on, they have hats on, just like they would downtown. And the hats is what gives it away for me because my grandfather worked in the stockyards and when I would see him, he always wore a three-piece suit and he wore a fedora. And you know what? He looked great, Bill. Yeah. He looked like every Jimmy Cagney movie you ever saw. (laughs) He was born in 1900. He was that era and I'll tell you what, I can't pull off wearing a fedora. I look like a poser. Yeah. But they look great. There were rules about like when you wore a straw hat and when you didn't. Between Memorial Day and Labor Day, I think it was. Yeah. I still remember first going on interviews out of college, which would have been the mid to late 80s. And it was still a suit culture in business or any job that wasn't manual labor. I mean, you might get away with a sports coat, but that was definitely frowned upon. And you're wearing a suit and a tie. Blue shirt was dressing down and a white shirt was, you know, you really wanted the job bad and knew that they were kind of a, either a financial business or something like that. Right. White collar and blue collar jobs. Yeah, exactly. But it's amazing how that culture, it takes decades for it to really change. And it it fades, but it it endures too. My work at Northwestern, I can be as casual as I want to be. Nobody's going to say anything. 
but two of my colleagues dressed like defense lawyers. <laughs> you could cut yourself on the, on the knot in their ties. Patrick, you talked about when you first started looking for jobs. I got a job at City Hall, 1992. My first day, woman looks me square in the face and says, who's your Chinaman? I'm like, uh, what, what, are, what are you talking about? And of course, I have since found out that she was referring to the fact that back in the day on South Clark Street, you go to Patty Bauer's place or Hinky Dink Kenna's bar to get a job, right? That was in Chinatown. What had been Chinatown before the fire, yeah. Right, and so they were still talking like that, Bill. There's always codes, and uh, Monica Ng, I think, at WBZ did the story that traced that down. Because okay. it does sound racist, right? Who, who's your Chinaman? And, but why would Chinaman be a figure of power in Chicago democratic politics? That seems to make no sense. And it was. Yeah. It was Kenneth Saloon on South Clark Street, just south of Van Buren. The building is still there. The still, there. still there. It's, it's a pawn shop. Yep. yep. Pawn shop. And upstairs is still a, a residential hotel for men. Or a flop house, as it might also be known. You know, you didn't never name any names because who knows who's listening. Some reformer might be listening. Before people would be wearing wires. Right. Yeah, who's your Chinaman as opposed to who sent you? You know, we don't want nobody, nobody sent. It takes generations for things like that to go away. Think about it, frankly, in terms of controversies right now about the police in Chicago. Mm -hmm. So when my dad was on the force from like roughly 67 to 79, he was trained by guys who were trained by guys from the Capone era. Oh, yeah, sure. Right. So he was one of the generation of like guys who had some college and whose first instinct wasn't to knock you upside the head. <laughs> um, right. So right now in Chicago Police Department, there are people who are like only a couple generations removed from being trained by Capone era cops. Right. And that's one reason why institutional cultures like police departments, politics, universities are so slow to change. There's this institutional inertia. There's talk of police reform and whatnot or hatred for the police. But we did a program on the Haymarket bombing and that statue was bombed like three times. Now it's at police headquarters because the Weather Underground tried to blow it up in the 60s. Well, they did blow it up once. One of my favorite Richard J. Daly stars, and you can see him over my shoulder there. He wanted to have like fiberglass replicas made of the statue. Anytime they blew it up, put another one in the next morning <laughs> like as a way to fuck with the hippies. And he was talked right. out of that, like, no, no, we, had, we should put it somewhere where it's not going to get blown up because somebody might get hurt. Um, <laughs> Which, going back to your Capone era thing, is it's not like Daly was concerned about somebody getting hurt. He was more concerned about the symbolism and the gesture. The symbolism of law and order, that statue holding up his hand to create order. Back here in the studio, Patrick, in this next segment, you and Bill talk about Liz Garibay. Yeah. But you just call her Liz. Right, because we know her as a friend, and right. I've done tours with her. I'm sure Bill's had beers with her, as have I. Just, just tell, tell our listeners a little bit more about Liz Garibay. Uh, I met her originally when she was working at the Chicago History Museum, and she was doing some tavern culture tours. She left there and went out on her own to start her own little cottage industry of doing history, as she says, through the lens of alcohol. And you and I did a podcast with Liz, episode 14, A Brewing City. Yeah. So in this next segment, you'll hear Patrick referring to Liz, Liz Garibay, and then Bill. Bill has had some friendly disagreements with Liz, but they're talking about the cause of saloon culture in Chicago. When we talked to Liz, you mentioned 5,000 bars, saloons, and taverns in Chicago to now 800. She attributed mainly to the dailies. That was their approach to decreasing law and order. Yes and no. Liz and I have disagreed with the, about this in public before, so this is not backstabbing. Richard J. Daly was very much opposed to public displays of vice. If, as long as it was behind closed doors and kept quiet, he didn't care. 
And the wide open Ed Kelly administration that Martin Kennelly had intervened in for eight years, let anything go. Kennelly shut a lot of stuff down, but mostly in black neighborhoods. He fucked with the numbers runners. He messed with Big Bill Dawson's people. He saw the black immorality as the problem. Richard J. Daly would let them shut down saloons. Richard N. Daly in the 80s and 90s actively taught people how to vote their precincts dry. I remember that. Yeah. And this was huge on the South side and West sides, especially with problem strips. And if you read Carlo Rotella's book, the world is always coming to an end. Like in South Shore, they voted the 71st and 75th and 79th street commercial strips dry to get rid of the saloons, which they thought brought down the tone of the neighborhood in the 70s. So that's part of it. Right. But all these factories closed. Mm -hmm. All the people who went to the saloons stopped going. People started going to health clubs. And Richard M. Daly's sort of crusade against saloons didn't just go away with him. It was the liquor commissioner, a guy named Winston Martis, who was infamous for reading things to the exact letter of the law. So I'm sure you guys know Jimmy's Woodlawn Tap down on 55th Street. But when Jimmy died and he left the place, which had a corporate license so he could transfer it to his bartenders, they had to like remodel and get it up to code. Because when you get a new license holder, that's what you got to do. But somebody complained. And sure enough, it was 99 feet from a religious institution. And you had to be 100 feet. I knew a guy at the time who was a lawyer for the Liquor Commission. And he was like, don't worry, it's not going to happen. I'm like, Martis has never lost a case. The letter of the law is 100 feet. This is 99 feet. What do you do? Measure from the edge of the door to the center of the door? And so Richard M. Daly was no friend of saloons. So the city's less enthusiastic embrace of issuing liquor licenses was a factor, but plenty of neighborhoods that were not voted dry saw the number of bars just evaporate. So Chris, as you know, I went to Loyola in the early 80s, and I did a public event at the G-Man a year or two ago where we talked about this decline, and I did the math, and I'm not going to have the exact numbers, but like between Granville and Broadway and Pratt and Sheridan, which is about a mile, it was something like 17 or 18 places you could buy a drink of which eight or nine were just taverns. Mm -hmm. And if you added Devon between Broadway and Clark, there was 10 more. And as of right this minute, there are three, Canines, Bruno's, and the Oasis. You don't have the factory culture. You don't have the after bar culture. I agree with Liz that the dailies were not friends of saloons, but I really attribute it much more to deindustrialization is desalinification. And this pandemic has really worked a number on tavern culture. It's an extinction level event. Yeah. A third of the bars in Chicago are never going to oh reopen. My God. In terms of the pandemic effect on the, the commercial food cultural landscape of the city, it's going to be the small places that survive. It's going to be places like Bruno's, which you can't sit in the bar side, but they sell packaged goods. They're going to make it. Their monthly nut is lower. They can keep making money in the pandemic because they sell primarily to go anyway. The hot dog stand that has a very low overhead is likelier to make it than the full service restaurant. Did Aid and these guys write about the 1918 influenza? Not that I've seen. What happens is in lots and lots of novels written in the 20s, it's something that is mentioned in this weird passing, like, well, she died of influenza, just like died in the war. If you're writing a novel that's not about the war, you don't have to get into much detail about the war. So-and-so died in the war. And that's kind of what other pandemic shows up in most, most of the fiction I've read and thought about in the 20s and 30s. It's like this thing that happened, but it's not your subject. During the war, that's why we call it the Spanish influenza, because Spain wasn't in the war and they didn't have censorship rules like the other, the combative countries did. Yeah, right. I mean, it came right. from Kansas, an American military base in Kansas. So we should call it the Kansas flu. So getting back to writing a little bit, we were just talking earlier about trends in saloons and, and also fashion 
address? From a writing perspective, these new writers that came in in the late 1800s, early 1900s to Chicago and made Chicago really a literary city for the first time ever. What was the implication of that to literature in general? Well, I would argue that Dreiser and Sandberg reset American literature in a certain direction about realistic use of language. And here, Aid and his connection with Mark Twain is really vital. Twain's use of vernacular English in Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is what opens the door for every writer who follows who writes in American English. And so Dreiser and Sandberg are doing that in the first two decades of the 20th century here in Chicago. And then that creates a tradition that enables people like James Farrell, Richard Wright, Nelson Algren, Gwendolyn Brooks to do the same thing. Stuart Dybeck and all the other contemporary Chicago writers, they opened the door for that. And I would argue that, that literary journalism continued with people like Royko. Yeah. You can read the best Royko columns as part of the American literary tradition. So Chicago does this kind of innovation that influences people like Hemingway and Faulkner and Fitzgerald, who are seen as the worldwide innovators. But they all can trace it back to Sherwood Anderson and George Ade and the writers in Chicago in the last decade of the 19th century, first couple of decades of the 20th century. Do you teach Studs Lonigan? No, I teach some of Farrell's short fiction. One simple fact about college is you can't ask kids to read 900-page trilogies. So I teach Chicago Stories, the anthology that Charlie Fanning put together. Mm -hmm. The only big novel I teach anymore is Native Son. I mean, I've just dipped into Farrell a little bit, but I'm amazed how funny it is. Oh, yeah. Everyone talks about the Studs Lonigan trilogy. He wrote five novels about Denny O'Neill, his alter ego. And Universal Illinois reissued them all a few years ago. It's really eight novels. Hmm. So back to your question, Patrick, that literary tradition, the journalists, the writers like Aid and Dunn opened the door and for later journalists like Hecht and Sandberg and Dreiser, who opened the door for Farrell, Wright, Algren, Brooks, etc. That Chicago literary tradition, you can trace the through line of personal connections, of mentorship, of examples. I mean, Stuart Divex has talked a million times about how when he was in high school, he read Studs Lonigan and said, hey, you can write a novel about people like these knuckleheads I go to school with. I didn't know that, right? He also talked about reading as a subversive act. So you're at St. Rita's and you're reading, you're up to something. <laughs> So what got you into writing? Either you fell into it or dragged into it that you became fascinated by this. I grew up in a household full of books and newspapers. My grandfather was a sports writer. He read four newspapers a day, which I still do. It was like breathing. And then Jesuit education at Ignatius and Loyola focused on writing. And when I was finishing up college, it was like, okay, there's two things I'm good at, school and bars. Maybe I should get a PhD because school, you get health insurance and your hands are dry most of the time. So it wasn't like some sort of faded thing. It just happened. I grew into it. And the kind of research I do, like for the Saloon book and the Day and Night book and the Algren City on the Make edition, all grows out of teaching. Like, what do my students not understand? How can I get that into something where we can start at a further space along the conversation? So the Algren book that you like so much, Chris, all those notes, that's all I could do in class. I'd have two days for that book, you know, 160 minutes for this book that I've been reading since I was in high school that I could talk about any paragraph of for 160 minutes. And all my students want to know is, uh, who's Big Bill Thompson? <laughs> what were the Black Sox? Oh, geez. That annotation, like here, you read it, you get all that information. And now we can begin the work of interpretation and appreciation. That is the real work, I think, of a literary classroom. The Old Time Saloon edition came out of, I, I started doing a seminar at the Newberry called The City That Drinks, various different subtitles like Chicago Saloon History and Literature, whatever. I went and I found this book by Aid, which was not in print, and I Xeroxed a few chapters and my students loved it, but it was also like, what's a bung stopper? Right. <laughs> what's a free lunch? 
And Maggie Hivner, who also was the editor at the University of Chicago Press for the City on the Make edition that Dave Schmickens and I did, I pitched it to her and she's like, yes, this should be in print. You have 2,500 words. I turned in 16,000 words. I <laughs> negotiated paring that down to 7,000 words. So I think I won. Are you thinking about working on something in the future, something rattling around in your mind? What I'm working on right now is a book, working title is The City Logical, Colin, why Daniel Burnham is way fucking overrated. <laughs> I'm expecting some pushback on my subtitle from the editors. I'm going to write about Edward Paul Brennan. He's the guy who set up the grid. Right. Who convinced the city council to make State and Madison the zero, zero point. We were just talking about this. That was in uh, 1908, I think, wasn't it? Well, he worked on it. It was first proposed in the city council in 1901. Eight years to get him to do it. He worked for decades on the street naming system to try to make it logical. And my argument basically is this practical thing that Brennan accomplished matters more in everyday Chicago life than the lakefront does. You know where you are in this town based on odd or even numbered address, north or south, yeah. east or west, and you can navigate the whole city. And looking at the quirks and the exceptions provides a way to talk about the whole history of the city. Like that part of Bridgeport between Halstead, Archer, and 31st Street, where the streets are not north, south, and east, west. That predates the grid getting there. Those streets were built to house people who were digging the canal. And they weren't welcome in the city, the Irish. Street naming. Why is King Drive on the south side? Why do you think? It was South Park. It was South Park Boulevard. Len Dupre said, let's rename the Civic Center for King. Literally the day after the assassination. And they oh shot that down. And instead they renamed, rename a boulevard in their part of town. And Pulaski versus Crawford. That's why you have Cashmere Pulaski Day in this town. Yeah. And when Ed Kelly did that in 1937, it was, I'll tip my hand slightly here, I've discovered an earlier attempt to rename a street Pulaski, where the neighbors who were going to have their street renamed complained because no Polish people lived on their street. And it was undone. What about Damon Avenue? We used to be Roby. People are still pissed about it to this day. <laughs> yeah, and so each of these, like all these street renaming things get into the American tradition of prejudice. When they're yes. anti-Catholic, anti-Polish, anti-Black, don't name a street for them if it's in my neighborhood. When they proposed renaming South Water Street for Charles Wacker, who was one of Burnham's team, basically, the Wacker Manual being a school textbook produced for the Chicago Public Schools, get their immigrant children to convince their parents to tax themselves to do the improvements that the plan called for. So they want to change South Water Street to Wacker in honor of Charles Wacker after his death. And a guy writes a letter to the paper, and I'm paraphrasing most of it here, but it's like, born in this town in 1855, the old names are the best, we shouldn't change names. And then his sign-off. America for Americans, Chicago for Chicagoans, that's my motto. Oh, it sounds like Charles Lindbergh, America first. This is something that's fundamental to reading Chicago literature. Mm -hmm. There's two ways to define your identity, positively with what you have in common with other people or negatively with what you don't share with somebody else. Yeah. And Royko hits it on that, that. Again, go look at the first couple of pages of the second chapter of Boss. He says, you know, so people stayed in the neighborhoods, enjoying the closest in the community and trying to save enough money to move out. Do you define yourself as, we have this in common. We came from the same old country, experienced the same trauma of emigration, of leaving behind family and friends and, and our culture. We share this. Or do we say, to heck with those guys. They're not like us. And both things seem to always happen. And the question is, once we're aware of that, what do we do? And this is why I think Dybeck is the most important contemporary Chicago writer, because he really addresses this in several stories where people who otherwise don't have a lot in common find what they have in common way of transcending difference. The story I'd recommend especially is Blight, Collection the Coast of Chicago, just a masterpiece. And it's not kumbaya, let's all sing together BS. It acknowledges that differences are real and they're still there, but it also finds the things we share.
which almost always involved, by the way, art and food. Food feeds your body and art feeds your soul. Back in the studio. So Patrick, Bill said that he's working on the street grid of Chicago. And I thought, boy, that's so appropriate because our next episode is going to be about the street grid of Chicago because we talked to Dennis McClendon. Right. And as a cartographer. So this is a perfect segue to our next podcast as a transition. So to whet the appetite for our subsequent episode. Did you say whet the appetite because we're talking about drinking? Why not? (laughs) As we just heard, Bill Savage said that food feeds your body and art feeds your soul. So what kind of food feeds a Chicagoan? Beer, pizza, and a hot dog. I would say yes to all that. (laughs) I was being a little bit more specific, though. I would add maybe Italian beef. Oh, sure. Italian beef is a well-known Chicago staple, I guess is the right word. Can't really find it outside of this region. We did have the Italian influence there in Youngstown. Oh, okay. We would have uh, like a very thinly sliced beef sandwich. And that wasn't a French dip or anything? Uh, It might or might not, but it was generally called an Italian beef. Yeah, but this is a real Chicago question. Yeah, did they dip it though? Was it dipped? <laughs> See, I, that I can't tell you. Do you I, have sweet peppers or, my, or hot? My, hot peppers uh, or sweet? My memory is not that good to be able to say definitively okay. yes or no to either one of them. Well, the next time you go back home, you got to research that. I can ch- I can check with the boys, you know, the gang from high school, and, yes. and find out. Um, what their reaction is to Italian beef and get back to you. Okay, great. We've been talking a lot about drinking and saloon culture through the lens of George Aid, his writing. And as you said to me earlier, perhaps our last call on this podcast would be a funny story from Bill Savage about Italian beef. So that'll be the final cocktail as we leave this episode. Yes, before the lights are out. Or your last drink. Yeah, last round. One for the road, as it were. One for the road. So here's a story about Bill Savage sneaking off the St. Ignatius campus to get an Italian beef on Taylor Street. Because again, food feeds your body and art feeds your soul, but an Italian beef kind of feeds both. Thank you for listening. Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hogginson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. You wrote this in The Reader. You wrote an amazing piece about how you snuck off campus to get an Italian beef. Can you tell that story about what the brother told you and what got you? By senior year, you're over being scared of getting punished, right? And Ignatius' campus at the time was, was a closed campus. You came to school and you left. You didn't leave midday. The little path that went by the athletic field down to Taylor Street, we called the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which <laughs> gave you an idea of, like, it's urban warfare. It's neighborhood war. Sure, sure. Me and a couple of buddies were sneaking out to go to Al's for lunch, and we got caught by one of the scholastics, which we would call Jesuit in training. He says, you okay, you boys going to Al? We're like, yes. Bring me back a combo, he says. Oh, shit. We got permission? Great. So we go and get our sandwiches and eat them and then pull, you know, 50 cents a guy to buy him his combo. Come back. We hand him his bag. He says, okay, it's uh, two days ago. Everybody. Like, what? You, you, but you, he says, it's against the rules to leave campus for lunch. Thanks for the sandwich. <laughs> I really learned the meaning of the term Jesuitical. Oh, you know it. It which was my very precise. My father went to Loyola. My dad went to Loyola Academy. I went to Loyola University. You know, 10 years of Jesuit education 
for me, the seed is that moment. Against the rules, against the rules, we'll leave campus. Thanks for the sandwich. And I bet you that sandwich was so good. Oh, Al's is the best. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast. <laughs>